0: Okay, let's take our Bibles then and turn to Joel chapter 3 as we finish the book of Joel this week. Uh, We're a couple of weeks late in finishing up Joel, but that's Joel's fault. And so we'll just leave it there. Our text this morning will be verses 16b to the end of the book, verse 21. Listen to the word of God as the Holy Spirit Moved Joel. But the Lord is a refuge for his people, a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. And in that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk. And all the brooks of Judah will flow with water and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord, the water to water, the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem for all generations And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. (coughs) There ends the reading of God's word. Join me with, as we go to prayer before we go through our passage today. Heavenly Father, again we praise and thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us and you expect us to understand it. You've given us the Holy Spirit to help us. And so I pray this morning as we go through your word, once again, we will be encouraged as we see your faithfulness, as we see your willingness to judge what is evil and to reward what is good and to protect your people. And so, Lord, I pray that again, we will go forth rejoicing, knowing that we have met with our God here this morning, I pray in your name, amen. Well, we often wonder why do we need to know what's happening in the future? Why, why do we even bother with it? And I think John gives us the answer to that in Revelation chapter 1. He says, the revelation of Christ, which God gave him to show him show to his bondservants the things what must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now here it is. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near." In other words, there are things to come, the events that are going to take place that God expects us to have a handle on. He expects us to understand. And he says there's blessing in understanding it and knowing it. And in fact, there's a hope that the believer has for the future because he knows what's coming. And a a good quarter of our Bible deals with things to come, with prophecy and with things to come. And I, for one, am unwilling to leave one quarter of God's word set aside because it's dangerous or because people disagree on it. And I would say this, no matter what your understanding of end time events is, it should always lead you back to the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ and always to the hope of his return. And so we always want to put that umbrella over everything that we do is that there is hope to come. And so we want to know what's coming and we want to understand it. Why? Because we're blessed in knowing it. Now we've been going through the book of Joel and we've been talking about the book of Joel and we said that if you were going to put a a, a little title to the book of Joel, you would say Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord. Now that has been variously defined, but we have defined it as this is a time coming in the future where God will pour out his wrath on the nations, purify Israel, and ultimately restore and put blessings on his people. And so the day of the Lord has this dual aspect of both judgment and reward that is coming in the future. Now, as we've been studying the book of Joel, we realize that as as he is speaking to the nation of Israel, as he gives this book, there is a particular people who are sitting at a particular time in history, and this book is written to them for their benefit. And so as we look at this book, we want to look at it through their eyes as they read it, and as the Old Testament prophets write, so that we understand what they are thinking as they read this book. Now, one thing that we we do know is this. That in looking to the future, there is this promise given to us not too long into the book of Revelation. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. There is a promise here that what is going to take place is those who overcome, those who are believers will ultimately rule with the Lord Jesus Christ on his throne. And what is being promised in Joel is looking forward to a time when the nation of Israel is restored and where the promises that Jesus made to his disciples are fulfilled. Where he says, and you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It says, truly, I say to you that you have followed me in the regeneration when the the earth is made new, when there is a a change in the millennial kingdom, when the Son of Man will sit upon his glorious throne, you will sit upon the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There's a future where there is going to be the disciples sitting on the 12 thrones, judging Israel. And then there's the promise to those overcome that they will rule with Christ. And what we see is that there is a, there is an interconnection between our future and Israel's future. They are tied together in the future because we are going to be in the same place. Those who are overcoming will be in that same kingdom as those who are the Jews and the disciples who are judging the 12 tribes of Israel there is a future kingdom that is coming and it's intertwined and so as we look at the events in Joel what we want to do is to look at that and understand the reason we need to know what's happening with Israel and what is taking place with the Jews is because we will be participating in many of the same things. And if our futures are intertwined and if we know what's happening with them, then we have a pretty good idea what's going to be taking place with us. And again, we want to see as we look through the book of Joel that God is dealing is doing two things. He is judging sin, he is judging the nations, and he is judging all those who are opposed to him. And he is pouring out his blessings on those who are his people, that are his people. And so as we start looking at the blessings that God is going to pour out on the nations of Israel, we have to recognize that we will experience many of those blessings for ourselves. And so we have that hope, and we have that joy, and we know that if God is a covenant-keeping God who will keep His promises to Israel, then every promise that He has made for us in our salvation will ultimately be fulfilled, and therefore we can praise Him and give Him all glory. And so this morning, as we go to this text, we're simply going to see really six events or six steps in the restoration of the nation of Israel and Judah as we walk through this text and as we see these, these six events, we, we can look to the future as to what will take place and we can have hope and joy and we, it should cause us to worship our God. So as we go, as we start through our text then, he begins that there is a protection for the Jewish nation look at this he begins this phrase in verse 16 but the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold for the sons of Israel now there's a term of contrast there we start right at the beginning but in contrast to God pouring out his wrath and his judgment he's just talked about it and and the roaring and his roaring voice from the heavens that causes the earth to tremble and the sun and the moon to grow dark and the stars to lose their brightness as he judges the nations in the valley of decision. It's God's decision to judge them for their sin. He says, in contrast to that, that voice that is echoing from Zion, from the temple in Jerusalem, he says, that voice, far from being something to be fearful, something that is, causes people distress, For God's people, it is a refuge. In other words, it is a comfort for them. When His voice is booming in judgment, it's not to them because God is their judgment. For the nations, the cosmic display causes fear and panic. Revelation 6 tells us, that when he broke the sixth seal there was an earthquake and the sun became black and sackcloth made of hair and the whole sun became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth and the figs cast its unripe fig when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll and when, when it was rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men And the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And so he is there dispensing righteousness and judgment but for his own people, his presence and the sound of his voice pride assurance of protection. Refuge means literally, he says, I'm a refuge, literally a place of shelter from danger. Figuratively, it's used to depict depict God as our refuge or shelter, a sure place of safety, protection, and security. This is a place where we can place our confidence, our trust, and hope. And he says, far from being something that is fearful, actually God is their refuge. God is their place to go in this time. His voice is coming, as it were, from the temple. And as a result, it says, and it comes from the temple... Isaiah 14, 2. The peoples will take them along and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel possess them as an inheritance in the land of the Lord, as male and female servants. And they will take their captives and they rule over their oppressors. They will come to the house of Israel. Psalm 61. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. And so Yahweh's people will come. Resulting in manifold blessing, do homage to the Son, that He is not be, He, not become angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who what take refuge in Him. Psalm 17:7 7 says the same thing. Wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior, of those who take refuge at your right hand, and from those who rise against them. And so here in this passage, we see that God is sparing what? The sons of Israel. The the Israelite nation before him is being spared because God is their strength, He is their refuge. It says, All who call upon the name will truly be delivered. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For out of Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivor whom the Lord calls. And he's saying God is protecting them. God is, they are his people. Now what I want you to notice is something is this. Why is he protecting them? Because they're his people. Now notice this. What is, what, what is chapter 3 predicated upon? Repentance back in chapter 2. Now remember in Zechariah, he said that they will look on him in, uh, whom they have pierced and they will what, mourn. And I want you to make it clear. Israel doesn't make it here and isn't protected here because, just because they're Jewish. Now that's part of it. But just like you and I, they have to come through repentance and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what is being talked about here is that remnant that he talked about that will be saved, that he will protect and he will keep. And they are his people, not just because they're Jewish, but because they are Jews who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and repented of their sin. Now, the good news for us as Gentiles and in the church is this. If God is this zealous for his people and his covenant promises to them, he will be just as zealous for the promises that he's made to us. And when he says that he will save you and he will keep you and that he will reward you and that he will bring you here, and and he gives you that promise in Revelation Revelation chapter three, that he will place you on a throne and to rule with him, then you can be just assured that God will be just as zealous and a refuge for us who have put our trust in him. And we too will be there with them in that refuge. Then I want us to see not only the, the protection of the Jewish nation, but I want you to see the holy and majestic enthronement of Christ of Christ in Jerusalem. Look with me at verse 17. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be the holy will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. Now Jesus said he would come back. We have scripture that tells us that he will come back and he will set his feet down on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem and the, and the, and the hill will be split. And so here is Jesus Christ coming back at the end of the tribulation to set up his millennial kingdom and he is coming here, and he says, Then you will know that I am, he says, Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy. And he says, here, to, here is Jesus Christ coming down. And he says, you will know that I am the Lord your God. And he says, you'll know you're, I'm the Lord your God because I have just judged the nations and I have just cast, I have put my wrath upon them and I have judged them. And you will know that I am the Lord your God because I have been your refuge and I have kept you and I have saved you and I have kept you from my wrath. And I've kept you from the nations that have come after you. And these will be a testimony to you that I am that you will know that I am your God. You will know experientially that I am your God because you have just seen what I have done to save you and to keep you. And you will know that I will dwell among you. You will know that I am physically present with you, dwelling in Zion, the temple, my holy mountain. I have come back and I am now there in the temple that has been rebuilt In the millennial kingdom. And he says. You will know that I am. I am dwelling with you. Because you will look up. And you will see what has taken place. As I have judged the nations. And as I have protected you. And you will know. Experientially that I am your God. Intimately. He says so Jerusalem will be. Holy and strangers. Will pass through it. No more," he says. "There's going to come, when I come back, Jerusalem will be a holy city." Zechariah eight three says, "Thus says the Lord: I will return to Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called." the holy mountain. Jesus Christ will come back. Isaiah 51, 2. Awake, clothe yourselves in strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. Jerusalem will be holy. And it says here that strangers will pass through it no more. Now there's some debate what that means. Some would say well that means that there will no longer be an invasion. And certainly if Jesus Christ is present reigning in Jerusalem, there will no be no chance of invasion being successful. But it seems better to understand this to actually be a moral thing. And in other words, the idea here is. The uncircumcised and unclean will never come into you. In other words, it's a holy city. Only those who come to worship the Lord will be coming into Jerusalem. Zechariah 14.20 says, In that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses holy to the Lord, and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls after before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. Now he's not saying there's no Gentiles that come into Jerusalem. What he is simply saying is that there will be none who worship other gods. None who are unclean. None who defy the Lord. Zephaniah 3.12 says, But I will leave among you. A humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord, the remnant of Israel will go will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will be deceit a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down, and with no one to make them tremble and again, the idea here is that there will, there will, Jerusalem will be holy because only those who come to worship Yahweh, the true God, the Lord Jesus Christ, will come to Jerusalem and it will be a holy city. And so he says, this is what's taking place in the future. In this day of the Lord, as God has poured out his judgment, he has now spared his people and now Yahweh himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, sets himself up in the temple And Jerusalem is now holy because he dwells there, and only those who come to worship him in spirit and in truth are allowed into Jerusalem. Zephaniah tells us that there will be be those who go up to worship from other nations, but no one who is unclean will go through. and then he says in in verse 18 there will be an overflow of blessings for Judah an overflowing of blessings and in that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk And all the brooks of Judah will flow with water and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. And so there's a promise here, not only that as as in the future when God restores Judah, that not only has he protected them, not only has he set himself up in Jerusalem, but now there will be fertility in the land. The land will now produce. And so now here is the good side of the day of the Lord as he starts to pour out his blessings. It's, the day of Yahweh is not only a day of judgment on the unrighteous, but a day of deliverance and blessing on the righteous. And both aspects of this theme are reiterated in these final verses. And so the, the language here is poetic, poetical hyperbola. A way of describing things in excess. He says the mountains will drip with sweet wine. Now, figuratively used to describe the exceptional fertility of the areas least known for their productive soil. This sweet wine that was one time was at one time cut off, if we remember, in in Joel chapter one, by the locust who ate all of the vines, it's now has been reversed. And once again. It, sweet wine will be joyfully consumed by the repentant restored people. The mountains of Israel will be so full of grapevines that they could be described as dripping with wine. So productive will the vines be that the flow of juice cannot await the treading of the wine press. And then he says, "And the hills flow with milk." The idea here is the land is going to be producing so much, so much vegetation that when the, there's going to be so many cows, that it's like the, it's like the milk is going to be running down the hills. Is the idea? There's just a vast amount of milk. It could be said that they're flowing with milk. The reversal of the fortunes of 119, where there was nothing for the animals to eat. Amos describes this fantastic future. Fertility, we, we looked at that earlier. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of the grapes, him who sows the seeds, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. It's just going to be so much p- production in the land that you can't keep up. Zef- Zacharias speaks of this as well. But now I will not treat the remnant of, of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there will be peace for the seed and the vine shall yield its fruit. The land will yield its produce and the heavens will give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit these things. Zachariah says it again, and the Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people for they are as stones of a crown, sparkling in his land. For what comeliness and beauty will be theirs? Grain will be, will make the young men flourish, and new wines the virgins. So again, there's this promise of prosperity. And it goes over and over again in Ezekiel. And then Joel, who earlier in chapter 2 talked about the wilderness will be turned to green and the trees will bore, bear fruit and the fig tree and the vine tree have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion. He says the threshing floors will be full of grain and the vats overflow with new wine and oil. And so there is this promise that God will make the land flourish. He says, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. Now, the, the idea here is, is if you know anything about Palestine, is that it tended, it's, 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 a, it's, its climate is like where it rains several in the spring and in the fall, but it doesn't tend to rain the rest of the year. And the land is hard, and so it doesn't take a lot of the rain into it. And what happens, tends to happen is there are these streams and rivers that flow. Often you will have flash floods, and then they go into these little basins and it stays there. Sometimes the water will run down under the rocks and run out into a stream or, or a spring and will run for a while until that water is all gone and then it dries up. But here, Joel says, actually the brooks of Judah will flow with water. It will flow with water. And then again, this is a reversal of Joel one twenty. even the beasts of the field pan for you for the water brooks are what dried up. But not anymore. God is going to bless the land of Israel with rain. He says um, he he talked about earlier about them having what rain, the late rains, and the early rain for your vindication. He talked about the dew coming up on the land. He says in Zechariah eight twelve, for there will be peace for the seed and the vine will yield its fruit in the land. And the land will yield its produce and the heavens will give their due. In other words, there's going to be enough rain to keep these streams running. There's going to be enough keep rain for these brooks to keep going. These oases will not dry up. And then he says this. And a spring will go out of the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Now, the Valley of Shatim is, is understood to be north of the Dead Sea. It's a place, Shatim is another word for acacia, which is a type of tree. And it's a tree that would grow in, in harsh condition in the desert. Most trees can't survive in it, but it, they could. They're, they're a type of tree that survives in that environment. And so there was trees in that valley. And he says, there's going to come a time... where there's going to be water that comes to that place. There's going to be a time where that valley that is dry, that valley that has these trees that only can grow in the desert, will actually start to produce. And he says it's going to produce because there's going to be water, it says, that will go out from the house of the Lord. Now what on earth does he mean by that? Water will go out... From the house of the Lord. Well, in Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48, Ezekiel describes a temple that the Lord is going to build during the millennial kingdom. He talks about its size, he's very specific, it has never been built in history. And as he is dealing with the temple, in Ezekiel chapter 47, Ezekiel writes this. before I say that, it's interesting that of all the ancient cities, Israel, Jerusalem is one of the only ones that is not actually by a a river. You look, you look at all of the major cities, Nineveh was built near the Tigris, Babylon near Euphrates, Egyptian cities were built by the Nile, Bowmanville by Lake Ontario, well that's, it's close all right we can only gather that lake ontario was once a river i don't know so and yet jerusalem here is described as having a great river and during the millennial change there will be it says in ezekiel chapter 47 then he brought me back to the door of the house and behold water was flowing from under the threshold of the house towards the east. Now he's speaking of the temple. For the house faced east, and the water was flowing down from under, from from the right side of the house to the south of the altar. He brought me out of the way of the north gate and led me around to the outside of the outer gate by the way of the gate that faces east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. Then the man went out toward the east, with a line in his hand, and he measured 1,000 cubits, and he led me through the water, water reaching the ankles. Again he measured 1,000 and led me through the water, water reaching the knees. Again he measured 1,000 and led me through the water, the water reaching the loins. Again he measured 1,000, and it was a river that I could not ford, for the water had risen enough. Enough water to swim in, a river that could not be forded. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me back to the bank of the river. Now, when I returned, behold, the bank of the river, there were many trees on the side, one side and on the other. Then he said to me, These waters go down to the eastern region and go down. To the Arabah. Then they go towards the sea, being made to flow to the sea, and the waters of the sea became fresh. What is he describing here? He's describing there's going to be a time where there will be water coming out of Jerusalem that will flow down to the Dead Sea. And there will be another stream of water that will flow to the Mediterranean Sea. And what will take place is this water will go down through the valley of Shatim, and it will water it and the trees will grow. And the water will flow down into the Dead Sea and it will start to make the Dead Sea into what? Fresh water. He says it will go down the Arabo, refers to the Jordan Rift that runs t- south to the Sea of Galilee, to the Dead Sea, and ultimately to the Gulf of Aquaba. He continues on in verse 9 in Ezekiel, and it will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live, and there will be very many fish, for these waters will go there, and the others become fresh, so that everything will live where the river goes. And it will come about that the fishermen will stand beside it from Ingedi to an algum there will be a place for the spreading of nets their fish will be in according to their kind like the fish of the great sea so many and he says there's going to be this time where these where the fishermen are going to go down and they're going to be fishing in the dead sea where the lord has now worked it so that the spring that is coming out of the, of the temple is now working down and watering that valley. And in that time, in the millennial kingdom, the Dead Sea will actually be a place where people fish. Not, they won't go there to float and get minerals anymore. They will be going there to what? To fish. And that will water this valley and it will produce in some of the area that was the least productive in the world, the least productive in that area, it will now be what filled. It says in Ezekiel forty-seven twelve, By the river on its bank on one side and the other will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So again, there's this time coming where, where the water will flow from Jerusalem, from the temple and will move down to the Dead Sea, producing life wherever it goes. And so the land will produce, the land will be changed and, and the land will prosper as Israel is there. And so there is blessing that is coming to God's people because they are His people. They are repentant. They are those who have put their trust in the Messiah, those who will be there. Now we recognize that the Bible tells us that when Jesus Christ comes back, He will come back with His saints, and with his angels, which means when he comes back in judgment to judge the nations, he's bringing back his saints, the promise to rule with him, which means you will be experiencing the blessings that are here. You will be, you will see this transformation of the earth during this time, and you will receive the blessings of it. You will get the food from it. You will get the healing from the leaves, as he says. Well, that's good news for the people of God. But he says in this restoration of Israel, he's also going to keep judging those who are opposed to Israel. He says, Egypt will become there will be utter desolation for Egypt. Egypt will become a waste and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah in whose land they have shed innocent blood. The Egyptians, the Edomites were two people who constantly troubled the Jews. More than likely, they are representing all the nations of those who are the enemies of Israel. And so what is taking place here is that Egypt that had the Nile and the Nile Valley and all its rich nutrients and all of the water that was there will now experience drought. It will become a waste. It will no longer produce. Edom also behaved badly towards Judah. The people of Eden were descendant from Esau, the greedy brother of Jacob who refused to let the children of Israel pass through their territory when they journeyed from Israel, Egypt. Instead, they made these weary pilgrims go through all the way around their land before they could enter the promised land. Later, the people of Edom had watched and walked while Judah's enemies had carried the Judeans into, acti- into captivity. Obadiah speaks to their pride. He says, they had proudly looked down on their brother nation and did nothing to help them. But on the day of the Lord, Edom, which had once boasted of its great wealth, which was safely hidden in its caves, would become a desert waste because of the violence done to the people of Judah. So it's interesting that it says they will become a wilderness. And Edom was on a land that was really more for grazing Animals, and therefore, the idea here is Egypt, who had the Nile and produced agriculture, would no longer produce agriculture, and Edom, because of what they had done to Israel, would be desolate. There would no longer be any place for their animals to eat. It says, because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, in whose land they had shed innocent blood. Now we're not sure exactly when that took place, but it says that they had probably the payback for the injustices that they had committed when they would not help Israel or when they persecuted them in their land. It's interesting the prediction of the future humiliation of Egypt and Edom serves as a greater, the, a, a greater theological purpose. For us to read it, we just kind of read Edom and e- Egypt would revert to de- desert condition, but for Joel's audience, it's implied that their god had triumphed. In the future, no one will look to Egypt or the gods of Egypt for saving power. No one will re- have regard for Edom. And so they will suffer and Israel's God will be exalted over all the nations as well as their gods and ideals. This is another way of joining Isaiah in claiming that Mount Zion will be exalted above all the nations and all nations will stream to it to learn the true teaching of God. It's more than political dominance over a bygone nation and extinct cultures. It is a triumph over the gospel, over every ideal religion, culture, identity. It's the bowing of the nations before Israel's God. And here God has shown just he has conquered them. He is over top of them. Israel's God is supreme. And Israel's God is our God. Then we will see the next step is is simply this. Judah secures secure in possessing her land. As God has kept them, God has prospered them, as he has judged their, their enemies, as he has set himself up to be worshipped, Israel will inhabit, it says, but Judah will inha- be inhabited forever and Jerusalem for all generation. In contrast, but in contrast to what is taking place with Edom and Egypt, Judah will be inhabited forever. This is a common refrained the restored v- fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Isaiah 33:20 says, Look upon o- Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an undisturbed habitation, a tent which will not be folded. Its stakes will never be pulled up, nor any of its cords be torn. Ezekiel 37:25 says, They will live on the land that I gave Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it. They and their sons and their sons and their sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Amos nine five. I will also plant them in their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord. And so here is Judah, who will now... And Israel, who will be back in the land that God has given them, he over and over again states, I will put them in their land, that they have been rooted out from their land, which I gave, have given to them. And he says, I have put Judah back here, and they will never be what uprooted. They will never be overthrown. They will never ever again be thrown out of their land. They will dwell there in security because there's no time that they will be ever thrown out. He says, Jerusalem for all generations. So the question then becomes, what does forever mean? I know some of you were thinking that. You were, you were thinking, what does forever mean? Well, the Hebrew word here for forever is, is the word for everlasting. And really, context will have to decide. It's short of our Greek word eternal. So we'll, context will have to decide what does we mean by, by everlasting. So the question is, Is this promise mean that Israel will be in the land forever? What happens if the millennial kingdom, which is a thousand years, comes to an end? What takes place? And I would understand that he is saying that Israel will be in the land as long as there are generations, as long as there are people, as long as this age is going, Israel will stay in that land. So I would understand that he is saying that until the end of the millennial kingdom, Israel will always be in this land. And then ultimately on into the eternal kingdom of, they will be there and they will be in Jerusalem. But there are no more generations after the last generation. And so I would understand that he is specifically saying here, Israel will dwell for the whole time that the Messiah is over top of Israel in the land. So that word I think contextually is probably better understood as to the end of the millennial kingdom, not throughout all eternity. Because if the Lord is going to burn up this world, as 2 Peter tells us, he's going to burn it up, create a new earth, a new heaven and a new earth, with new geography, um, I would understand that his promises are to the end of the millennial kingdom. So he says, Judah will be there, they will be in security. We have... Now we have the descendant, as we we talk about, David, the new David, ruling over Israel from Jerusalem with Israel in the land. The land is producing. Israel will never be thrown out. There's no enemies that will overthrow them. Their enemies have been punished. And then lastly, we will see the final avenging. He says, I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Now, what on earth does that mean? What on earth does that mean? Because this is is a hotly debated issue. Some have said, well, this means that the Lord is going to avenge the blood of all those who are Israel's enemies. Because until he has avenged all of their blood, their innocent blood, and he has avenged it, then God is not finished. Others say, well, no, actually, what he's saying here is, is that I will avenge their blood and that there refers to to, to the Israelites. Their blood guilt is the idea which I have not avenged. In other words, I will forgive all of Israel's sins. I will, forget, I will forgive everything that they have done. And so they will have complete forgiveness as they come and as they dwell. Well, which one is it? Which one is it? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> this is one of those times where I have to say, if I was leaning to one, I think he's dealing with the blood guilt of Israel. But I'm not going to, I'm not going to be dogmatic on that, as you shouldn't be in a lot of end time stuff. As, as one man said, when you deal with this sort of thing, there are a lot of godly men that agree with you, and there are many more godly men who disagree with you. <laughs> so, um, but it would seem that he is saying here that God will will ultimately forgive all of Israel's sins. He will he will make sure that everything is taken care of, as they are here. And he says, "For the Lord dwells in Zion. He dwells in the temple. He is." back here in Jerusalem, reigning. And this is what we have in Revelation 19.6. The glorified Lord Jesus will dwell in Zion, reigning as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is what the psalmist says in 2.6. But as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy hill, This is what Isaiah 52 refers to. How lovely on the the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and say to Zion, your God reigns. And so as we have looked at this day of the Lord. And as we have looked into the future and what God will do, we see God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. We see his faithfulness to the nation of Israel and how he restores them, restores the earth, restores them spiritually and restores them nationally to the center of his program for the millennial kingdom. And so we can look forward and we can look forward with anticipation to what God will do, what he will do historically in the future. And we can look with confidence. And we can understand this. Above all else, from the book of Joel, God will judge sin. He will deal with those who are in rebellion to him and he will punish them And he will ultimately send them to hell. And he will not let sin go. And the only way that we can escape God's wrath, the only way that we can get away from the wrath to come is to be his people. In other words, we must come like every person in history We must come through the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we must put our trust in him and our faith in him and our allegiance to him. We must trust in the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only way to escape the wrath to come. It is only the way that we will receive the blessings that are coming in the future is if we have made a right understanding of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Israel won't get there unless they turn to their Messiah. You won't get there unless you turn to the Messiah. And so the only way that we will eventually receive these blessings to to reign with the Lord Jesus Christ for that thousand years and then when Christ gives the kingdom over to his Father and God is all in all and we go through into eternity and experience the blessings of of the new heaven and the new earth as a new Jerusalem comes down to earth. The only way we will do that if we have might a right confession of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we have, then we have hope. We have this hope. We have the hope that God will make all rights wrong. We have the hope that he will judge all evil. We have the hope that we someday will see the Lord Jesus Christ and we will see him face to face. And guess what? We also have a peek as to what he will do in the future. And so we can look for expectation for exactly that he will do exactly what he has said he will do. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Joel. And we thank you that even in the Old Testament, you are pointing to the Messiah. And you are pointing that there are two groups of people. One group of people who are right with you and one group of people who are not. There are one people who are under your wrath and headed for destruction. And there are one group of people who are headed for blessings in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you that we can know what is coming in the future because you have put it in your word. We thank you that we can see your faithfulness. We can, we can praise and thank you that we can see that you are a covenant-keeping God and that whatever promises that you have made to us will also be kept. And we thank you that we can, again, worship you for all that you are, And so I pray this morning that we would be those who would be in right relationship with you, that we too can look forward to that time where we'll see our Savior and in that time where we'll experience the blessings of his presence, I pray in your name. Amen.